0: Amen. Amen. Thank you, Paul, and Faith, Rhett, and Choir. Such wonderful, beautiful songs this morning. Paul always does a great job of choosing the songs. Um, This particular, he uh, sort of did an audible, and we changed some things up in midweek. But it was such a great audible, because the songs just flow so well this morning with Matthew 2 on worshiping the King, especially the last song. Um, it should be our heart's desire to worship God. And I hope and pray that you are here this morning to do such. We have so many reasons to be thankful, so many reasons to worship God. He is the one true God, and we see His character is good. God is good, as I read this morning, not just in the things that we receive, but He is good all the time. So we have so much to be thankful for, and even as we sang the love of God, I was overwhelmed with the thought of God's love. It is rich and pure and strong and persistent and consistent, and as the psalmist says, his steadfast love endures forever. It's a beautiful, beautiful thing. Well, turn with me this morning to Matthew chapter 2, as we see the wise men, worship Jesus. Luke 2 is traditionally the Quote unquote Christmas pas- passage. Whether it's Charlie Brown or around the Christmas tree on Sunday morning, we turn to Luke 2. Well, Matthew 2 is popular, but for a different reason. Matthew 2, for, while Luke 2 talks about the angels and the coming of the Messiah and Jesus born in the manger, now Matthew 2 talks about, I guess you could say, the sequel, the second part. What happens after the birth of Jesus? And so Matthew two, while it might not be as popular as Luke two, the two go hand in hand, they coincide together, and like we saw last week, Matthew and Luke are different, but that's okay. They write from different perspectives, and they're not writing different stories, they're not writing different gospels, they're writing about the same gospel, different accounts, but they point to the same story of Jesus Christ, the the one predicted the one where the prophecies point to the one who has come, and we see particularly Matthew talks about all of these prophecies are important because they point back to the fact that Jesus was who? He was born of the son of David, from David's line. So we're going to again see these predictions, these prophecies fulfilled. Matthew, knowing his Old Testament well, quotes from it on three different occasions. And so, in the coming weeks, we are going to be looking at Matthew, maybe through a uh, 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 more, more uh, taking more chunks of the book at a time, maybe more than one chapter. But this morning, we're just going to look at Matthew two, and there is more than enough to cover this morning. So, Matthew two. Let's stand as we read, and as I, as we honor the reading and preaching of God's holy word. Let's hear the word of the king. Now after Jesus was born in Bethlehem of Judea in the days of Herod the king, behold, wise men from the east came to Jerusalem saying, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? For we saw his star when it arose and have come to worship him. out of Egypt I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious, and he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that, had, that, had, that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation. Rachel, weeping for her children, she refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. He rose and took the child and his mother, and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father, Herod, he was afraid to go there. Being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, so that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, that he would be called a Nazarene. Amen. You may be seated. All right, let us pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this time together. We thank you for your word and how it points to your divine sovereign plan. And Father, we are not only seeing history unfold, we are seeing the fact that you have revealed your glory through the person and work of your Son, Jesus Christ. He is fully God and fully man. And Father, we have come here today to worship you. So fuel our affections towards your Son, Jesus Christ. Fix our eyes not on ourselves or our earthly pleasures, but Lord, I pray that we will find your Son, Jesus Christ, as our greatest treasure. Father, lead us by your Spirit. Fill us by your Spirit. Let us walk by your Spirit, because, Father, too often we walk by the flesh. And so, Father, you are our greatest good. You are the all-giving good God. So, Father, we... We have not come here this morning complaining, whining, saying that we do not have what we need because you have given us everything we need. And so, Father, I pray that you will teach us time and again who your Son Jesus Christ is. While philosophers, sociologists, and current skeptics scoff at the name of Jesus, Lord, we know that he is the one true God. So, Father, we come this morning to worship Him. And, Father, as we ask the question, Who is Jesus? We know He has come to seek and save the lost. He has come as the Messiah. So, Lord, we rejoice in these truths. Sanctify us, Lord. Make us more like Christ. In these things we ask. In Your Son's name. Amen. Matthew 2. The visit of the wise men. We see the wise men as important, as powerful as people that we look to in the Christmas story. Well, this morning I want to see the main point of this text is that Jesus is born as a king. Not just as a king, but a king to be worshipped. Not just as a king to be worshipped, but the one who's to be worshipped who fulfills All of the prophecies, who fulfills all that was prophesied about him. So Jesus is born a king who is to be worshiped, who has fulfilled all of the prophecies. I know that's a mouthful, but it's all important, and it's all here in the text. And so we're gonna go quickly this morning. Um, Sheena did tell me this morning, uh, this morning as we're getting ready, that she was in the nursery, and I said, oh, I'm sorry. And she said, well, why are you sorry? I said, because this is a longer sermon. So, um, um it just so happens that it fell on your turn to be in the nursery. But uh, this morning, as we go through this section, we'll try to go quickly, but there's a lot of important information here, and I'm just going to be hitting some of the highlights. So I know maybe after we're done, you might be, you, after we're done, you might be thinking, well, he forgot about this. He forgot about that. Well, that's for more study later. But in this chapter, we see three sections, maybe you could say four, but three main sections, verses 1 through 12, 13 through 18, and verses 19 through 23. And verses 1 through 12 is the popular passage, the one where we often uh, look to when we're talking about the wise men. Who are these wise men? What are they doing? And we often, when we think about the wise men, what do we think of? The star and the gifts. And that's what we see here in this passage, the star and the gifts, these Wise men worship Jesus. Now, I know that kind of sounds corny and like a prepackaged sermon series, but it's true. These wise men worship Jesus. They come worshiping Jesus because they know Jesus is the one they are looking for. He is the one the prophecies pointed to. Well, Matthew begins by telling us that Jesus was born in Bethlehem. We see these markers in verse 1, in verse 13, and in verse um And later in verse 19. But here in verse 1 he says, now after Jesus was born. So this is a transition in the text. He transitions in the text to tell us about what took place after the birth of Jesus. Sometimes we kind of conflate all this information into one big scene wrapped around the manger. But this is all carried out over a period of months and even years. And so now Matthew tells us this is what takes place after the birth of Jesus. He tells us, these are the days of Herod. The days of Herod were not calm, peaceful days. These were violent days of fear. Violent, turbulent days where you knew it was, you were not living under a benevolent man. This was a man who was violent and a man who was not nice to Christians, to say the least. And so Herod is paranoid from many historical accounts. He was paranoid of people who were rising to power. He is king, and when there's a king, they don't want other kings to be around. So as he is king, the thought, even the thought of another king rising to power, and it's almost ridiculous when you think about it. Jesus isn't 33. He's not, you know, what we might call in the prime of his life, but he is born. I mean, a lot of babies, they don't they don't rule the, the home. In fact, they, they, are, they need everything from their mother. And so he is paranoid about this one who was born as a baby. But as, we, as I was studying this chapter, I thought about James where it says, even the demons believe that there is one God and Shudder. So even Herod knew that there was one God and there was one king that was to come born of the prophecies. And so Herod is paranoid of the thought, the thought that a king was rising to power. So he hears this question of of the wise men in verse 2. The wise men come and they say, Where is he who has been born king of the Jews? We saw his star when it rose, and we have come to worship him. So this isn't just a question of curiosity. This isn't just, tell us where we can find this man who can point us to our next spot on our destination. No, they have come to not only find the one king of the Jews, what is their purpose in coming? We see it in verse 2. To worship. They come to worship Jesus. What does Herod want? There's always a battle uh, when we, we think of secular rulers over worship. Herod wants worship. Jesus wants worship. Jesus doesn't just want worship. He demands worship, as we will see later on through the Gospels. But this is unsettling news for Herod. The wise men are looking for Jesus, born King of the Jews, born to to save. And they are looking and they are searching, but not just to find him. You know, like if you were searching for a buried treasure, when you find the treasure, you don't say, oh, Check that off the bucket list, found it, let's move on. No, if you were to find a buried treasure, you would delight in it. You would fill your pockets with it. And so, likewise, as the wise men come to Jesus, they come not just to find him, but to worship him. We know the importance of finding him because they traveled a great distance. You know, this wasn't a quick flight, this wasn't a short drive, but they traveled a great distance to find him and to worship him. So likewise, we too, we must not get lost in the details. We too must long desire, have a great desire to worship Jesus. We must not dwell on our sin, as I was thinking about um, things this past week and how quickly we can fall into sin. The devil wants us to stay there. The devil wants us to dwell on our sin, but we must not dwell on our sin. We must dwell on Jesus Christ who covers our sin and who is our Savior. That's one of the many ways we can worship Jesus, but we must worship Him here because He is who He says He is. He is the Messiah. So the wise men come, they travel, and they see Jesus. But again, as I said earlier, they don't see Him in the manger. They come and they see Him in a house. He is the risen King who has been born to seek and save. But not all agree with this, as we see in verse three. When Herod uh, the king heard this, he heard the question. He heard their desire. He heard their purpose was to worship him. When he hears these things, he was troubled. He was greatly disturbed. And what does he do? He assembles people around him to tell him what he wants to hear. He assembles the scribes. He assembles the Pharisees. He assembles these great, pompous, important people in order to tell him things that will feed his not to feed um, his desire for worship. So he gathers these people around him in order to get information. And as he does so, he is seeking to thwart God's plan but they will not thwart God's plan. We see as the scribes, as the chief priests talk to Herod, they are carried out and they are used by God. In verse 5, they tell him it was in Bethlehem of Judea that he was born. And he was born, this probably did not sit well with Herod, as a ruler who will shepherd his people Israel. So this is the first of three prophecies where Matthew, where he quotes, where does he quote from? You can use your Bible as a cheat sheet there at the bottom or in the inside. He quotes from Micah. He quotes from Micah chapter 5 that this man, this baby would be born as a ruler, a ruler at birth. He ruled from eternity. What does Colossians 1 say? Colossians 1 says, Jesus was before all things and in him all things hold together. So he ruled from eternity. But Herod could care less about Jesus' status now or before his birth. He summons the wise men in order to manipulate them. I mean, we are seeing the big big picture here. Matthew's filling in the details for us. But he has the wise men come to him in order to manipulate them. As a king does, he uses his subjects for his own pleasure and he's manipulating them, he's secretly snatching information from them in regards to when the star appeared and and um, what, what the stars mean and why they are following the stars. But Herod is not concerned about astrology. He's not concerned about the stars in the sky. He's concerned about eliminating the one who put the stars in the sky. He is consumed with killing Jesus. Herod tells the wise men to continue on their journey as they search for the child. But as they go, Herod tells them, When you get there, when you reach your destination, send back word so that I can join you in worship. Come on, we know better. I mean, we know the story. But he's not in, He's not intent, his desire is not to worship Jesus. His desire is to eliminate Jesus. The wise men listen to King Herod, but they are following a different king, the true one. So the text tells us that they find the place where the child was by means of the bright star in the sky. And when they reach their destination, what happens? They rejoice. They worship. They rejoice, the text says, exceedingly. They are filled with joy. Like all of us on a long trip, when we get to our destination, we pile out of the van, we pile out of the car, we're like, we made it! But for the wise men, it was more than just a destination. It was more than reaching a place. It was more about reaching the person, worshiping Jesus. They are elated. They are excited because they have made it. And again, contrary to what we may have heard growing up, they did not find Jesus in a manger. They find him in a home, the home where he was staying. But again, we must note their reaction. They come into the home. They see Jesus. This is one of those those pictures you just love to be there. They see Jesus and what do they do? Immediately they fall down. Immediately they fall down and they worship the king. Nobody said, you know, this wasn't in order, you must bow, you must worship. That was their instincts. They fall, and they worship Jesus. The only proper response to Jesus is worship. It's not contemplation, it's not head knowledge. It's not any of these things other than worship. The wise men come prepared, ready to give gifts to the king of the world. I mean, what do you give King Jesus? I mean, I'm sure you've heard this at at Christmas time when you're uh, buying a gift for a family member. What do I give my husband or my cousin or my wife who has everything? Well, this is the, the key time. What do you give Jesus, born king of the world? Well, they come, and we won't go into the details of these gifts. You've heard the the details before. But they come bringing gold, frankincense, and myrrh. Very elaborate, very expensive, very extravagant gifts for Jesus. This is where we often think that there was three kings because of the three gifts. We don't know for sure. We don't even know their names for certain. There's been guesses according to different traditions. But here is an important thing as I was studying this chapter We must not get caught up in the details, and I I confess I get caught up in the wise men. Oh, man, that is neat. I wish I could have been there, could have been on the journey, could have carried somebody's bags. But it's not about even their names or where they come from. It's the fact that they are worshiping Jesus. We don't need to know their names. We don't need to know all these details. It matters who they go to worship. So as we examine the opening several verses of this chapter, it's important for us to see the faith of the wise men. The wise men believed in Christ when they didn't have much to go on. They had not seen Christ, but their belief was more than simple head knowledge. It led to action as they traveled to see Jesus. So their belief led to action. The scribes and the Pharisees, they were filled with knowledge. They were the ones who had all the schooling, all the learning, if you will, but they did not respond in faith. The wise men, however, they believed God and they followed the star to where Jesus was. Listen to what J.C. Ryle says. I'm going to quote him a couple of times in the sermon. J.C. Ryle says, They believed in him when they saw him as a little infant on Mary's knees and worshipped him as a king. This was the crowning point of their faith. They saw no miracles to convince them. He hadn't turned water to wine. He hadn't fed 5,000. He hadn't done any of that. They heard no teaching to persuade them. They saw nothing but a newborn infant, helpless and weak and needing a mother's care like any of us. And yet when they saw the infant, they believed that they saw the divine Savior of the world. And again, they bowed down and worshiped. So the wise men believed they had faith even as they traveled. But the crowning point was when they were face-to-face before King Jesus. But after the wise men worship Jesus, they leave to go back home and are warned in a dream. We see the importance of dreams last week and even this week, a couple of different dreams. And they're warned not to go back the same week, the, the same way. Herod was going to try to thwart God's plan But again, God carries his plan out always and perfectly. And he tells the wise men to go back a different way. And then the second section, verses 13 through 18, we see another amazing aspect of the story as Jesus and his parents flee for their lives. Again, this is like an action-packed movie. They're, They're going, trying to flee for their lives. Joseph is visited by another angel with another startling message. You know, if I'm Mary, I'm probably asking Joseph, what are you eating at night? We're having all these dreams. But he's having another dream, another angel, and he's basically told, get up and go. No time, get up, go, take your family and flee. And they flee, again, because it's looking for Jesus. Not so that he might bring a baby gift, but so that he could get rid of, eliminate, kill Jesus. His intent was not good. He was bent on destroying the child of whom the prophecy spoke of. So Joseph, he doesn't shrug off the dream. He awakes and quickly departs with his family to Egypt. He and his family travel by night in order to most likely not make a scene as they leave. While in Egypt, they live quietly waiting until it is safe to move again. You and I can only imagine, I never really thought about this until I studied Matthew 2 this week, just the uncertainty of that time. Living in Egypt, how long, you know, Mary asking Joseph, how long are we going to be here? I'm not sure. You know, will they catch us? Will they find us here? I'm not sure. You know, just so many, so many uncertainties here in this text, but yet in the midst of the uncertainty, they know that God is watching over them. God led them there. Now God is providentially guiding them and carrying out His plans. Matthew again quotes from the Old Testament, this time, the first time from Micah, this time from Hosea, and he says, This was to fulfill, as they're going to, as they are, um, in Egypt, this was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet, Out of Egypt, I called my son. And again, if we study our Old Testaments well, we know this is an important reference. This is an important reference because he is referring to Jesus as my son. And in this particular passage in Hosea, he calls Israel my son. And so this is very important as we see Jesus as the true son, the true Israel, who's fulfilling the prophecies as the perfect son. Amen. So Jesus is the one who has come to fulfill God's plans. As we continue in the passage, Herod realizes he's been tricked, he's been duped, he's been deceived. Nobody likes to be deceived, and so Herod is furious. And the hatred of Herod reigns throughout the region. He's furious. What, what does he do? He orders the killing of all children under the age of two. Why under the age of two? Because this is according to the time that the wise men and, that had told them when the star had appeared, and he orders their deaths. We don't know how many young children were killed, but we do know it was violent. It was a horrible act. It was a despicable act. And it shows how wicked men and women can be towards others. Herod's hatred towards humanity in general shows his hatred for the people under his rule. But more than that, it shows his hatred for God in rebelling against him. You and I should be reminded as we study Matthew 2, that rulers in history, and even rulers today, usually aren't sympathetic to God's causes. Rulers in history, and even today, usually aren't sympathetic to God's causes. Whether it was Herod, or Nero, or Ho Chi Minh, or Pol Pot, or Saddam Hussein, they all killed many, and persecute the people of God. They seek to build their own kingdoms, while trying to threaten the kingdom of God. But God is not mocked. His plans will not be thwarted. He will not be threatened by these mortal leaders. Because even in this chapter, we go from Herod, the pompous um, ruler, who's trying to plan all these things, who's trying to get all this worship at the beginning of this chapter. Well, what happens by the end of the chapter? He's dead. He's not in the picture. So these rulers will not live forever. They die. So for us, those who follow Christ, we are not to lose heart when we see injustices carried out by rulers in the world today. Kings, they rise. Rulers, they rise. They fall. All under the hand of God. But Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He will rule and reign in eternity. So we do not have to fear these rulers, and even when there's great darkness that roams through the land, there was great darkness, there was great sadness after this decree, after the death of all these little ones. Matthew now quotes from the Old Testament a third time this time from jeremiah and the the connection's a bit tricky here, and I won't get into all the details, but basically this points back to a great sadness, a great sadness whenever the exiles were or when they were sent into exile. The exiles must have wondered if God would deliver them, if his promises were true, so it points back to a time of great sadness, but in the midst of the sadness, there was a glimmer of hope. Well, now, Matthew says, that hope is here. Even in the midst of all the deaths of these little ones, the hope is in the fact that Jesus has come as the Messiah. He's escaped the wrath of God and will ultimately reign. D.A. Carson writes this, The tears of the exiles are now being fulfilled. The tears that begun in Jeremiah's day are climaxed and ended by the tears of the mothers of Bethlehem. I can't imagine the grief, the pain that these mothers went through. But these tears would end. The heir to David's throne has come. The exile is over. The true Son of God has arrived. And he will introduce the new covenant promised by Jeremiah. So the time has come, even in the midst of great darkness, great weeping, that there would be hope. And that hope has come through Jesus Christ. So in the last section, we read of the journey, the journey continuing. Herod dies, as I mentioned earlier, his reign has come to an end. But now we have a new beginning, a new start for Jesus and his parents. Joseph, again, receives word through an angel it's now time to go back to Israel. The angel tells Joseph, Herod is dead. They can safely move back. But in another dream, Joseph is warned not to go back to Bethlehem. Instead, Joseph, Mary, and Jesus are to go to the area of Galilee. Specifically, they pack up and move to where? Where do they go? Nazareth. Nazareth. Big booming metropolis of Nazareth. No, no. But this is what the prophecies predicted. They predicted that he would be born of Nazareth. The Word of God is fulfilled once again, not through great powerful plans of man or prestige, but through obedience and ordinary circumstances. Jesus was called a Nazarene because he was from Nazareth. You know, we are in awe of Jesus, and we should be in awe of Jesus but nobody's in awe of Nazareth. Nobody's in awe of his hometown. He could have been from Hebron, Gibeon, or Bethel, which are much more popular places, much more prominent places. But no, God saw fit that Jesus was born in Nazareth. Jesus comes from a city that was small and insignificant. This ordinary, boring city shows his humble beginnings, shows the humility of the one who came to save. But we must learn from Jesus' example, even in the place in which he grew up. We are prone, as Jeremiah says, to seek great things. We are prone to seek prominent places as we go about our lives. But yet, Jeremiah and John tell us not to seek the things of this world. Again, I want to quote one more time from J.C. Ryle. J.C. Ryle says, This is a powerful quote to me. I'll leave it up here so we can read it slowly. It is a great sin to be covetous and worldly and proud, but it is no sin to be proud, or it is no sin to be poor. It matters not so much what money we have and where we live and what we are in the sight of God, or as what we are in the sight of God. Let me start over. It is a great sin to be covetous and worldly and proud, but it is no sin to be poor. It matters not so much what money we have and where we live as what we are in the sight of God. Where are we going when we die? Shall we live forever in heaven? These are the main things which should concern us. So we may not have powerful, prestigious jobs, or come from powerful hometowns, big places. We may not be chosen like the wise men to go on a great adventure, but we are called, just like the wise men, to bow down and to worship Jesus, just as they did. And as we worship Jesus, what do we do? We humble ourselves. Just like John the Baptist said, He must become greater I must become less. We humble ourselves as we worship Jesus. We must realize disciples are not superheroes. Sometimes I think they are. But they are not superheroes. They are ordinary. Matthew was ordinary. Mark was ordinary. Luke, John, they are ordinary men. You and I are ordinary, but we believe in an extraordinary God. By faith, we believe in God. By faith, we trust in God. By faith, we obey God. Trip Lee says this Faith isn't believing God will give you everything you want. Faith is believing that God will do as He promised. That's shareable on social media. You know, share that a thousand times today. Or just over lunch. Faith isn't believing God will give you everything you want. Faith is believing that God will do as he promised. So Matthew is telling us here today, God did as he promised. From Micah to Hosea to Jeremiah, from Abraham to Isaac to Jacob to David, Jesus has come, King, King of the Jews, King of the Gentiles. He has come to seek and save those who are lost. So we are so thankful that God keeps his promises. And we see all of his promises are true through the promised one, Jesus Christ. Let us pray.